This year is especially important for Sino-German relationships. We are looking back at 50 years of diplomatic relations. So I find these kind of remarks quite well undiplomatic. Well, at a time when we are almost on a daily basis uh, overwhelmed with negative news, we didn't really need more bad news. I don't think the sentiment is uh, there that you would have heavy-handed measures, except for things that have national security implications. For example, specific things in the supply chains like rare earths or, let's say, some parts of consumer electronics. In the past three decades, low inflation in US, in European countries, in Germany, lower than two or three percent. What's the reason? Because the close cooperation, globalization, and supply chain with China. This is the main reason. If they really decouple from China, I think everything will change. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun, joining our discussion today on Germany's new trade policy with China and its implications are... Liu Jun, Senior Fellow, Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies of Renmin University of China. Dr. Ila Vellard, Assistant Professor of Practice in Economics, New York University, Shanghai. And Peter Halis, Chief Advisor, Guangzhou, Huangpu District, Guangdong Province in Southern China. Great to have you all on the show and a warm welcome. So, the German government is working on a new trade policy to reduce what it calls dependence on China, including on Chinese raw materials, batteries, and semiconductors. And several German government officials, including Economy Minister Robert Habeck, have delivered similar messages. I'm not sure what that sounds like to you, but to me, it sounds like another decoupling from China plan. And Let's start with our two German guests. Peter, uh, it's your first time here on the show, so why don't we start with you? What's your first reaction upon hearing such remarks? Did you feel it's probably time to leave China? Uh, certainly not. Well, thanks, Tune, for the question. Well, at a time when we are almost on a daily basis uh, overwhelmed with negative news, we didn't really need more bad news. Uh, this year is especially important for Sino-German relationships. We are looking back at 50 years of diplomatic relations. So I find these kind of remarks quite well undiplomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany and China also look back at more than four decades of mutual beneficial business relations. Uh, more than 5,000 German companies are operating in China. Just for, for reference, in July 2022, China exported to Germany 11.2 billion and imported from Germany 9.49 billion, uh, resulting in a well positive trade balance for China at 1.67 billion. Between July 2021 and 2022, the exports were at an increase of 17.6%, uh, whereas there was a decrease. You know, so but you know these are all how can I say we have to see it in you know the COVID situation, the current global situation. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you don't address this kind of trade balance uh, by, by just saying, like, you know, you want to uh, take harsher measures. To answer your question, uh, it's of course not time to leave. Well, in the early years of China opening up and uh, reform, you know, there was an attraction of the cheap labor that was here, especially here in the Pearl Delta, or the, what's now called the Greater Bay Area. But now, I mean, China is a 
a massive market, has a rising middle class, great infrastructure and an ever larger pool of talent. So I still see a good potential for Sino-German business relations. Mm, you're really a good uh, advisor to the district with all figures at hand. And uh, Ilaf, you as a professor teaching in Shanghai, um, what's your response? Um, I think the decoupling, I think, is hopefully not targeted at, uh, at my person individually. Yeah, I'm a native of uh, Germany, so I think... Um, for me personally, I, I don't think it affects me. I mean, my my brother is working for Volkswagen, mm-hmm. but I don't, I'm not invested or I don't, I don't, I'm not shorting the stock. I don't <laughs> drive any car. So I'm uh, perfectly neutral on, in this regard in terms of like the effects on car industry and so on. And I think when, when I heard it, I think it was interesting because I enjoy... Uh, language. I mean, not just the Chinese language, but also like German, English and so on. So when uh, a lot of media picked up on the naivety, mm-hmm. and I think it's very interesting because the sometimes statements reflect more on the speaker rather than sending a message out to the world. And uh, you have to remember the economy minister, that mm-hmm. is uh, Mr. Habeck, mentioned this, that uh, they would like to no longer be naive and they're from the Green Party. And inside uh, Germany, as well as in other countries, some of these uh, parties, although they have good aims in terms of environmental protection and, for example, a peaceful world, the problem is sometimes that there is a clash with pragmatic reality. And um, so naivety is actually something from philosophy. It's like basically moral idealism. And um, I think in, in China, you have much more pragmatic politics. And I think Habeck from the German party might say more about his own, if you like, political background or the criticism the, the party gets, the Green Party, on being idealistic, on being pragmatic. Then this is a lot tested now with the situation in Ukraine and gas and switching back to nuclear for temporary time. So I think it's an interesting time to be alive and like um, analyze this from abroad, that is from, from Shanghai. You think that uh, the German leader or if uh, government officials are not being pragmatic? Well, I think it's basically an admission uh, of uh, fault. It's like a self-criticism. They are basically criticizing themselves for being uh, morally idealistic. Um, And so I think they're basically suggesting they're not sufficiently pragmatic to deal with the global economy as it is and with all this, uh, uh, you know, faults. However, you have to remember, this is an economy minister, not necessarily a prime minister, and it's Mm. not uh, it's not on law. And uh, there's a lot of factions uh, within the coalition government about what role uh, to take vis-a-vis, for example, Ukraine history or vis-a-vis China or United States. So I think it's not set in stone. It is just one member of the coalition government suggesting some policies. Mm. And we've had uh, the interpretation from two German gentlemen and uh, on the Chinese side, Jitsing, I remember last time when we talked about why Volkswagen resisted pressure to shut down its uh, Xinjiang operations. You mentioned China can live without Germany, but Germany cannot live without China. So do you still believe so? It, it seems the German government, or at least the current government, doesn't agree. I think that we should consider this question in two ways. One mm-hmm. is that we have to pay more attention about the issue of development of, between China and Germany. You see, my first visit to Germany is early in 1981 mm-hmm. at the invitation of Hessen and Landes Regierung. 
the government that they invite the many Chinese uh, scholars and engineers to have uh, further study there in order to train the more professional international businessmen and also more technical engineers for China. I still remember very clearly at that moment that the government has a, such a slogan that invest in the future. That means they have very good training course for the developing countries in order for the future of economic development for both sides. Mm. So this is a very right policy and welcomed by the whole world, especially by China. So I think at that time, China sent hundreds and two hundreds of scholars, uh, officials to study in Germany in different banks and uh, companies there. Since then, that we see in the past four decades, the relations between China and uh, Germany is so close that without the, another side, I think the one side cannot work or develop very well. We see that we have very good connections with the German manufacturing sections, and also we have got many technical assistance from German side. So that's why we see that China developed also with the assistance from Germany. And also German market, if we see that so many products came from China, as we know that even last year that still 240 billion uh, US dollars trading in total for two sides. So in these connections, we still see that the close connections and the relations between China and uh, Germany is so reasonable and also very essential for mm. both sides. For many German companies, as I know that uh, even the big banks there, they always say that without the market from China, that they could be losing their jobs in Germany. And so many German companies also have similar concerns and complaints that if they really depart from the or decouple from Chinese market. So this is the way that Germany cannot live or cannot develop very well if without the market of China. Mm. But China still is a huge market. We can have more opportunities than German companies there. So this is the way that we should let the German economic sections and also economic friends that to know more details about the consequences if they really want to leave China or decouple from China, they will have more challenges and disasters in the future, especially in the economic development. As we know, in the past three decades, Low inflation in U.S., in European countries, in Germany, lower than 2 or 3%. What's the reason? Because the close cooperation, globalization, and supply chain with China. This is the main reason. If they really decouple from China, I think everything will change. Yeah, uh, three of you just mentioned how close bilateral relationship has been developed over the past um, five decades. So it's a little bit... Um, pity to see the relationship between the two sides come to uh, this stage, especially yeah, sure. on not, yeah, the not, German side. Not only surprising, not, not only surprising to me, to myself, it's also to my old friends, especially in German side, mm. side because I have many German partners in Taichung. Taichung is a small city in mm. Jiangsu province. It's a German center, German hub, German village. Yeah, so they could be very surprised also to see the such consequences. But we, we see that there's still a chance that, uh, to make some adjustment. And uh, this is not the dead line of the relation between two sides. But mm. we hope we can get a chance 
opportunity to make something changed. Indeed. And Ilaf just touched up a little bit on why the German government uh, made the move. So, Peter, wh- what do you think? Why is the German government making the move now? Uh, well, I think it's not a, a movement of now. I think we, we've seen this thunder rising on the horizon. Mm. Um, I mean, when we look at the, the timeline of Sino-German and then also Sino-European political exchange, we can see that it reached a positive well, I could say climax, uh, when agreement was reached on the Europe-China Comprehensive Agreement of Investment, the CHI or the CHI, which was one of the last acts actually of uh, former Chancellor Merkel before going into retirement. Now, this was at the end of 2020. <laughs> uh, when we think back of 2020, 2020 started with the, the horrible COVID and, uh, you know, everyone was kind of like thinking, wow, you know, uh, at least we are concluding 2020 with something positive. Mm. Well, so we thought. Then uh, the hopes were also high with uh, President Biden after the Trump years that, you know, U.S.-China relations would normalize again. Again, we got disappointed. But not just this. I'm, I'm going to stretch a little bit further also to the, you know, the global part. Sure. Uh, it's not just this, that the new U.S. government was very upset about the, the Thai and uh, they also opposed the, the U.S. decision very openly. And then on the May 20th, 2021, Thai was suddenly frozen by the EU parliament. And very curiously, uh, this was just one day after the US uh, waived the sanctions on Nord Stream 2. So mm. basically, on the 19th, Nord Stream 2 was waived to be sanctioned. And then on 20th, so one day later, uh, Thai was frozen. But as we also know, uh, now, Nord Stream 2 got also sanctioned after the outbreak of the Ukraine conflict, leaving basically the EU with neither an investment agreement with China nor a secured gas pipeline from Russia. Why am I talking about Europe? Well, because uh, Germany is the largest European economy and probably feels the impact the largest as well. Right. Also, when we read the Thai, the Comprehensive Agreement on, on Investment, when we read it very carefully, the content mainly are concessions from China to Europe. Well, this is not something, you know, a, a grant uh, because China is doing a favor, but basically uh, because, you know, Europe is already quite an open market. But basically I'm saying there has been some development before this. Uh, also for 16 years, we had rather a stable Sino-German relationship under Angela Merkel. Uh, but then in December 2021, we got a new government that unfortunately have not much of China experience and are currently also overwhelmed by the Ukrainian conflict. So that's how I currently see it in this uh, time context. Mm. Then come to the the word naivety, which Ilav just mentioned. Is um, what the economy minister said true, that Germany has been naive in its trade and economic relations with China, and there will be no more naivety, Peter? Yes. When we talk about uh, naivety, I mean, uh, on one hand, uh, the, the German government is, you know, uh, calling itself naive before or maybe referring to the former government. But actually, when we talk about investment, I mean, you know, this we have now the opening up of China for uh, more than 40 years now. And, um, you know, I've been living in, in China, living and working in China for more than 20 years now. And I don't think the German business community has been naive in China. Well, German companies enjoyed good treatment 
uh, ever Im- improving business environment and uh, German goods, as we know, are selling well. And, uh, you know, the German people also have always received great respect in China. I would actually say perhaps in former days, when the first investors came, you might have called them brave or even naive because, you know, the situation was very different. I mean, today we have uh, IP protection. We have the protection of the environment. We have the labor rights. They're much more pronounced than before. Uh, even though the Comprehensive Agreement Act that I just mentioned, that high, has not been signed yet, but many of the policies in there have also been put into place. You know, so companies like uh, BMW or Mercedes, they don't have to have joint ventures anymore. And uh, forced energy transfer, as it was quite common before, is also a thing of the past. So the only thing, to my knowledge, I'm in regular exchange with companies here, uh, the only thing to my knowledge that German and European Business recently had problems with the disruptions of the supply chain due to COVID, you know, but that actually should, in my perspective, be a, a temporary disruption. You have just um, explained it a little bit, but Ilav, could you please elaborate a little bit more? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think we have to distinguish on the one hand that this is just one policy idea floated. It is not uh, the, the German government because it's not law. It is not uh, supported by all the you know parties in the coalition. In the past, so naivety would be that basically you, you don't look at the facts. And I don't think that is the case because it would assume you absolve yourself from responsibility. So I think that is not the case. I think it was, uh, you know, the it's uh, free trade, uh, mm. free and willing trade, depending on the cost and benefit analysis. And this takes into account the, the size of the market, the different technological, you know, inferiority, severity. So I don't think so. However, we also need to distinguish between what this statement was portrayed in the media as, which mm. is decoupling from China. But I think the policy idea that was floated there is very specific ideas uh, about specific sectors and specific actions the German government could do to, for example, withdraw support for investment guarantees or expert guarantees. So I think uh, the answer is I don't think it has been uh, naive because it has uh, plenty of analysis on trade relations with the rest of the world uh, vis-a-vis Germany. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You have just mentioned it's not necessarily a consensus reached uh, among government officials, but um, we've seen it's actually underway right now in Germany, I mean, coming up with new trade policies. And Jutin, um, what kind of um, specific measures do you expect from um, Berlin this time? We know Habeck uh, did not outline specific measures in full, but uh, said they would include closer examination of Chinese investments in Europe, such as in infrastructure, reducing or even scrapping investment and export guarantees for China and no longer promote trade fairs. Yes, so, I think so, because mm-hmm. at the moment we, we don't have a very clear picture of the German government measures, how to depart or how to cooperate with the Chinese government, because it's not an easy copy processing of the German policy with the American policy or with the other countries that to try to decouple from China because it's not easy for German government to make such decisions. So I, I highly appreciate the comment with uh, Peter and uh, 
They both understand the real situation very well. But it's a pity that the high officials in, in Berlin, maybe they do not have such a concrete feeling how to feel that the Chinese environment processing and, and also the changes in the Chinese conditions of doing business. This is really totally different with the local German companies with the high officials in Berlin. So we need a time that to communicate with each other. So I have to tell my friends that in Berlin just to say, if you say that to be dependent on China is naive, I should say that it's more naive that if you want to decouple from China, because mm-hmm. it's, it's a great mistake for German economy. So with the German economy will suffer heavy losses and a lot. So what I should say that the German government should not follow the example of the American side and other side because the American market really have suffered a lot from so-called decoupling. Mm. I think in the following sections, the German company could consider, German government could consider how to leave or how to decouple with China. For instance, raw material supply and also from the semiconductor production and the manufacturing sections and also from other points of investment in the so-called sensitive industry in Germany and also for high technology, smart technology corporations or even including robot production in this field. So all these so-called high technical corporations could be disrupted for short term, but in long run, I don't think it go in favor of two sides. Actually, the German market really need the Chinese market. We have a very huge population here. We have very strong purchase power. No other countries, including the United States, cannot be so good, reliable partner for Germany. So what we need is not only the so-called profitability, but also stability of the society, stability of the economic policy. Peter has already said that uh, this year, just three months in the first, uh, from from March to June, so I think in southern part of the China have some COVID control regulations made something in chaos. So this is already done. So we have to try to adjust all these measures and the policy to improve the environment of doing business. I think Berlin government and the high officials could have more face-to-face talks. I hope that really Premier Schultz can come to Beijing to have a practical investigation here to meet German partners here to know what they are feeling and they are thinking to make a, a right policy towards China. So I hope more corporations could be further strengthened in the economic side. Mm, yes, we do hope Chancellor uh, Schultz can consider that. But um, Elaf, from your perspective, do you think the German side could come up with any you know, killer measures? By killer measures, you mean, can you maybe explain what you mean by this? Um, something really heavy-handed. Uh, maybe two quick points. I think one, uh, there is something already, I think, in place that is the Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, basically that goes up and down the supply chain for businesses that are in, and not just in Germany, but I think in, in Europe. Mm. And this could have, if you like, unintended consequences um, in terms of 
maybe some companies cutting their supply chain in China. I think for this one, we have to yet to see. I think in terms of heavy handedness, um, you could uh, look at what, for example, US authorities have done. In the US, you have like five big things there, and all of them have had um, significant effects like the uh, Department of Defense, like we have the entity list of banned entities or the Treasury Department saying uh, investment controls or Department of Commerce saying uh, you cannot invest or export or SEC delisting companies on the stock market. And I think if we just go by the playbook of what has happened in the US-China economic relations, this has followed a tit-and-tat strategy. So then the result of a heavy-handed strategy because these uh, policymakers, you know, they are aware of game theory and strategic interaction that the counterparty responds by the actions of, you know, both China and the United States. You can see that you should take this into account if you do something heavy handed. Mm. And if you think the, the, the cost of this are worth it, maybe, you know, you can rationalize it, but it needs, you need to be aware of it. But I think it's, so like all these, you know, we have Peter and Mr. Liu also mentioned this, different companies, Huawei, Xiaomi and ZTE and so on. Some of this has already happened. For example, the 5G exclusion from uh, Huawei equipment and uh, ZTE equipment. But I think the trade policy issue has not been as a sensitive topic in Europe mm. compared with the United States. And you can see this also reflected in uh, you can bring up the C word, COVID. So I think my kind of experience is that, for example, the the racial tensions, uh, you know, against, for example, uh, Asians, I think was markedly less in Europe compared with other parts of the world. I don't think the, the sentiment is uh, there that you would have heavy-handed measures, except for things that have national security implications, for example, specific things in the supply chains like rare earths or let's say some parts of consumer electronics although so like if you look at the data most of the dependence of eu and specifically germany on china is in consumer products and consumer electronics Mm. but these tend to be not in the very high part of the value chain and you could replicate them and relocate them to other parts but Mm. If the supply chain stops or these products don't come, you have disruptions. They might not be disrupting national security, but it might lead to, for example, huge delays in terms of consumers getting their product and macroeconomically probably uh, adding to inflationary pressure You know, for a couple of years' time after companies relocate and source the materials and products and intermediate products from other areas. Mm. And Peter, your take? Yeah, I think as also Pro- Professor Leo uh, mentioned, it's probably right now, it's still difficult to say. We can also say certain measures have already been taken, such as, for example, the Volkswagen does not receive the German government assurance anymore for their investments in China. So mm. this is quite a big thing. Others also from the EU side, for example, the investment screening mechanism, uh, the International Procurement Investment IPI, and then also the anti-coercion instrument. These three policies, they don't say specifically that they're targeting China, but uh, a lot of people actually say this is already in this direction. When we then hear the voices from the German investor side, from the German business side, you know, there are, of course, some German CEOs that are quite vocal about their positive assessment of the China market. For example, the BASF CEO, Bruder Müller, 
now former Volkswagen CEO uh, Dies. Mm. But I would actually also hope for more and stronger voices. Why am I saying this? Because what many people that are not dealing with the German business or the European business so much, what they don't understand is that actually around 98% of German businesses are SMEs. So we only have 29 Fortune 500 companies. Mm. And yet, according to a recent report by the American Rhodium Group, the top 10 European investors in China in each of the past four years made up nearly 80% on average. And then uh, of a total European direct investment in, in the country. So in 2019, the trend was a, even greater with 88%. So in, in the years before, the top 10 European investors in China made up just about 49%. So you can see, especially the the large bulk, the multitude of the companies. And uh, Professor Liu mentioned also before, we have uh, more than 400 German companies in Taizang. So they are actually, most of them are, are SMEs and uh, hidden champions. They take the bulk of it, you know, mm. because the, the multinational companies, they are already very localized. They know the ins and outs of China. And, uh, you know, they have uh, a lot of Chinese staff. They have Chinese staff in the, on the decision-making uh, level. And uh, the SMEs, the, these are the ones that my heart is beating for them at the moment quite hard. Yeah. Mm. And obviously, uh, like you just said, uh, the stoppage of um, investment guarantee by the, the German government hasn't, you know, prevented uh, Volkswagen from continuing their investment in China. But for the SMEs um, or other uh, smaller companies that have the intention to invest in China, would they hesitate? You're saying they would. Well, we have to understand the mindset also of an SME compared to a multinational company is very different. They are more conservative, they're uh, owner-run, their representatives here in China are also most of the time Germans as well. They are less localized, uh, they're more careful, their investment is more little, their core competencies is more restricted. So if disruptions are being felt, you know, they will feel it much harder and um, will have a much bigger impact uh, on their business than, you know, let's say, the large multinational corporations. For them, maybe a loss of 100 million is bearable because, you know, they're spread around the world. But, you know, for an SME, even a million loss in something can be very significant. This is my, my worry, actually, you know. And uh, they are also in their investment decisions, uh, as we could just see, they're a lot more restrained, you know. So if they're not investing, they're losing out on the on the China opportunities, mm -hmm. while the, the large corporations are still fully taking advantage of it. I mean, you know, uh, BASF just recently invested 10 billion US dollar in the Guangdong Zhanjiang. This is something major. And, uh, you know, it really makes the, the headlines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if, a, if an SME invests, you know, then we will rarely talk about it. It, it really makes the news headlines. Peter just mentioned that uh, he hopes uh, more rational voices or louder voices from uh, the big potatoes. But, Elaf, how persuasive or how effective can those, um, you know, chief executives or heads of the company be in turning around the, the German government's um, mindset? Uh, so I think it's a good question, and I would like to pick up on what uh, Mr. Hillis was saying. Sure. I think uh, I think he mentioned just to reiterate that in terms of FDI, as you mentioned, close to ninety percent of that from the EU 
mm. is done by the big players right. uh, and the, the rest is much smaller companies and the prospective measures I don't have data on to what extent these investment guarantees, the rare, like sorry, the materials uh, and the credit uh, backing and exports support by the German government is given to big or small companies. Mm -hmm. um, maybe Ms. Mr. Hellis has more data on this, but if it is taken away and SMEs are making use of that, uh, it will hit the SMEs much harder than the big corporates. Mm -hmm. Now, the big corporates... If we remind ourselves that uh, it's a Green uh, Party economy minister uh, who have probably their misgivings about, for example, big industry because they are uh, against pollution, environmental degradation and so on, they might be benefiting from some of these investment guarantees. I don't have the data on which companies actually get them. Mm. And they have been very uh, vocal in terms of pushing back on the this specific proposal so they have you know in terms of like industry associations they have uh, made statements indirectly or directly taking snipes um, at uh, mr habeck the minister so they are already gearing up to kind of reject that right. um for example you can also pull up data right uh, in terms of the export dependent jobs that are related to china that is accounting by some estimates around 1 million people. Uh, if you look at the data, I think Mr. Hellis and uh, Professor Liu were also mentioning some data. Just to put this in, into context, uh, the exports from Germany to China account for 8% of Germany's exports. But from the European Union to China, Germany accounts for 50% of exports. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, Germany might be less affected, but the uh, European Union, if it's adopted more broadly, it will hit other countries uh, in terms of their exports in percentage, relatively wise, much more. Yeah, you've mentioned a lot about uh, how it will affect uh, the German side. But on the Chinese side, Juqing, what do you think such a new trade policy would bring to us? That uh, definitely we should say that China's uh, industrial section will have an impact or negative influence because we know that uh, many Chinese uh, manufacturing and also the automobile industry and also auto machine tools especially in the past four decades that we have so close cooperation with uh, German partner. I still remember when I was working in Stuttgart that is a state, the city of the land the Baden-Württemberg because I know so many SME Germans that uh, they came to China to set up their factory and subsidies here. Mm -hmm. So if we really this relation is decoupled, I think the psychological effect is very uh, strong for Chinese uh, company. As uh, Peter just said, that German company, German brand, German economy and German model is really so popular in China. We, even German beer, of course, German mm -hmm. sauces also. We, we like German products in, in all fields. If this is really decoupled, and uh, this could be very hard disaster or damage to the Chinese feeling mm -hmm. towards German partner. Because in our opinion, we always say that German politicians are more inclusive, more openness, especially we learned uh, for 16 years from Merkel, the premier. So we see that the German partner and the culture is so interrupted with the Chinese partner. 
every week I went to the German beer house in Beijing, in the Kabinsky Hotel, you see. We know that so well, see. So if this really happened, I think this is really a heavy problem for Chinese economy. But we hope that this is not should be happening. As we know that the latest information or statistics, the FDI from January to August this year, that we have the investment from European countries, 138 billion US dollars. And from Germany, we included a lot also the investment director from the German side. So this is a very important, not only German side, but also the rest of the European countries will have heavy losses, unemployment, and also lower down their livelihood in German society. I don't think this is a very good or clever decision if they really decouple from China. Chinese companies, of course, we have some heavy losses, but we can overcome all these problems in the short term because we have already due circulation. Domestic circulation is the major part. But we, it's just still pity that we should go together with our German friends, German partner. So we hope still in the future we have chance and opportunity to rebuild the mutual trust and have better uh, understanding. I got information from my friend in German China chamber in Beijing. They told me that Last year, that they have an investigation in the German company, that over 73% German companies are willing to have more investment in China. Mm-hmm. But this year, it's really slowed down, lower down to right. 51%. So that's why for many Chinese companies, are a little bit concerned and nervous what's happening between this one. We hope that the German side could be have less influence from the politicians and let the businessmen make their own decision. The government should not involve or engage in the market in a such deep and not reasonable way. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. And as Jiting uh, just mentioned, um, the willingness from the German side to invest in China actually seems uh, it's going down. But um, Peter, you, you said you won't leave China, but uh, is there any you know German company leaving or considering leaving China right now? Right. So the word of uh, decoupling has been in the air for quite a while now for, well, I think at least uh, two or three years. And um, it was also picked up by the European Chamber, and uh, you know there were even uh, some specific publications also by the European Chamber. Right. And um, it so far we have not seen it happening. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, when we when we look at uh, China's development over the last forty years, you know, so in the first wave, you know, uh, people took advantage of the abundance and, and cheap labor, and uh, you know it was purely all. For export, and you know, there was a lot of cheap Kali production. You know, I mean, especially here in the Pearl River Delta, and high pollutants. You know, uh, labor intensive. A lot of these kind of companies they left because they could not comply with the environmental regulations anymore. They left because the, the labor got too expensive, the labor got too scarce. But you know, they have been replaced on the upper value chain. So now 
speaking, I'm here as chief advisor of the Guangzhou Hambo district, uh, which is the main business district of, of Guangzhou. Mm. And um, while we started in, in the early 80s with uh, similar production, now, you know, we are on the up, upper value chain. So we, we focus on the ICT, AI, the biomedicine, new energy and new materials. In these areas, there is continued interest, continued investment. And now the companies, they are coming to China uh, not to take advantage of, you know, uh, cheap labor because that doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. or it's a lot rarer, let's say. Uh, they come here for the market. They come here for the talent. They come here for the supply chain. They come here for, you know, especially uh, Greater Bay Area, come here for the, the access to uh, Southeast Asia, you know, now with the RCEP. So it, you know, it has changed. And um, a recent uh, report, I think it was Wall Street Journal or somewhere, they were also asking different kind of people, you know, have you seen companies leaving? And then uh, there was one one consultant from uh, the German Mercato Institute. Actually, the Mercato Institute is usually quite hawkish on mm. And, uh, you know, he basically said, you know, if you ask me, uh, it's the very opposite. You know, there is more investment coming into China and more engagement uh, with China. You know, of course, the current COVID measures still prevent the large investments, but, you know, it's, it still continues. And uh, also from my own experience, I mean, we're, we're still continue talking and, uh, you know, having investments here in, in, in southern China as well. Currently, I see the decoupling in theory. I don't see it in practice. To broaden the scope. Let's take a look at uh, Europe. You know, first it's the U.S., now it's Germany talking about decoupling from China. Elof, do you expect what Germany is considering now to become a trend in Europe? Inside Germany, there's uh, heterogeneity, so there's all kinds of different sentiments, but across the European Union, there's even more heterogeneity, and you've seen the lack of for example, unity, except for some special situations like maybe the you know, Ukraine situation, that for controversial things, it's very hard to find, uh, if you like, common ground. Um, I think what uh, we set this in the context is COVID happened and mm. the pandemic happened, and then the, the supply of oil and gas and so on was also restricted in the aftermath of, uh, of Ukraine. And I think it would not be unreasonable to expect that a selective state-directed decoupling in the sense of for certain supplies, there probably will be more state support and state-direct involvement and uh, intervention for certain materials, for certain things, for certain industries that have become very sensitive. For example, you know, pharmaceuticals, energy, uh, but I think it's more unlikely than likely that this will be targeted at a specific uh, country, right? Because if you take outside of China, there's many other countries and many other uh, industries where from an economic security point of view, there should probably also be a rearrangement of, for example, supply chain diversification that are not intended to, for example, harm that uh, source country. But it is just as a measure of economic security and you know national uh, protection. I mean, this is my prediction. I might be wrong, but uh, I think it's more likely to see certain measures in certain industries. And these will probably not make that much of a headline because this is like in the weeds, probably very tiny things. Most people haven't heard about uh, industries and parts and so on. Yeah, so I think that is more likely. And I think this probably will not be uh, garnering so much headlines 
mm. and airtime as uh, the, the, the the recent proposal by Mr. Habeck. Uh, Peter, what's your take? Do you see any country to be the vanguard in this uh, effort? Well, I think at this moment, you know, uh, uh, Europe is probably facing uh, its largest challenge after the Second World War. You know, mm. I mean, we have the Ukrainian crisis going on not too far from us. Germany and other parts of, of Europe are dealing with a, a massive energy crisis right now. So from my perspective, you have to also take it with a pinch of salt because, you know, I left I left Germany in 98. And uh, of course, I've always been, been back. But, uh, you know, I've also observed uh, how politicians developed. You know, so I don't think this will happen immediately. Mm. And uh, when new governments uh, come into power, very often they are very hawkish on certain topics. And uh, when we think back when Angela Merkel took power, she was not a friend of China at the beginning. Mm. And it took her quite some time to to warm up to China. You know, and then she, she left a, a, a legacy of quite a 16 years of stable Sino-German relationship. Indeed. So you can already hear, you know, I'm the, the eternal optimist, mm. um, you know, and the same for Europe. I mean, right now, uh, Europe has so many other things on the plate that are far more important. And um, the last point is, I also very regular read the German media. And I mean, although there are not many medias that now allow the comments under underneath, when it came to, you know, Habeck's mentioning, then, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of Germans actually uh, oppose this thinking and say, like, you know, I mean, don't we have anything better to do right now? You know, so I'm still I'm still hopeful that this will just be, you know, some utterances and the, the publication that they want to publish. I mean, you know, there, there will be policies. Uh, this we also need to be sure there will be policies towards China. And they say, like, I think in spring next year, maybe uh, Ilaf will know this better. In spring next year, they are planning to to launch this policy, how to deal with China. Yes. Uh, can I just uh, jump in here? Uh, sure. Just, I think very briefly, just to tag on to what uh, Mr. Hellis was saying. Mm. I think the big kind of um, black swan is what will happen in the United States in terms of the election right. and what will happen inside Europe following the aftermath of the Ukraine situation, because that is something that is really hard to predict. Mm. And that is something that is like outside of the, my realm of, uh, of economics. So I, I just know that. So we're going uh, going through huge changes, you know, not just, you know, the election of uh, US President Trump, Brexit, Ukraine, but also at the same time, since 2007, 2008, huge financial crisis and the re-emergence of China as an economic uh, powerhouse, as well as the rise of India and so on, all these things basically challenge the assumption of, for example, people like me, people who, you know, come from Europe, come from the Western world, have, you know, enjoyed the prosperity after the Second World War. And the presumption is, for example, okay, change via trade and uh, economics. But uh, I think the the, the, the example of China is, and this is like a challenge for economic theorists and analysts, is China is like a new model, like the blurry line between private and state, the intersection. And that is something that is hard to predict because when, for example, the United States rose after Britain uh, declined as an empire, the United States is large, but it is uh, relatively speaking not potentially as large as China or, for example, India. And this means that 
it presents a challenge for trying to predict uh, what could happen going forwards. At the same time as you have, besides China re-emerging as a power, at the same time you have also within the Western economies, US, European rivalry, but also closer cooperation in inside Europe, also a huge domestic upheaval. And I think as Confucius said, I wish that you do not uh, live in interesting times, uh, because apparently that is marked by a lot of, uh, you know, very dangerous changes. So I think I'm optimistic also, but I think uh, by, by human nature, but as an economist, I just know that uh, although I think it is, it is unlikely, I think it's hard to predict the kind of political economy factors that could make a change, maybe not in next year, but maybe in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Seems um, all of you are optimistic, or at least um, think that um, such kind of um, policy or decoupling from China may not go, you know, too far, at least uh, for the moment. But uh, the reality is China's economy is slowing down. Yes, um, foreign direct investment in China grew in the first eight months of this year, but uh, the growth rate actually it was lower than what's recorded last year. And um, I'm wondering, and this question goes to all of you, a last question. Um, faced with uh, what's happening around the world, will China's growth momentum in the next few years be significantly reduced? And how may China deal with the decoupling challenges or potential decoupling challenges? Some experts say, you know, the most difficult time for China lies ahead and it will last some five to 10 years. Can China fare through safely? Jiting, can we start with you this time? In two seconds, I should say that the direct investment from foreign countries in digital to China is a little bit only slowing down, but actually, as a general, it's still increasing. As I just said, that the FDI from European countries already increased by 123.7%. This is another figure that we should know it. But from some area, especially from Southeast Asian countries uh, and from the uh, Americas, the FDI is a little bit slower than our expectation. But in total attendance, I think they're still increasing. And I should say that because the European countries, I don't believe that they will have a chain reaction that uh, to one after another mm. try to decouple from China. If they can find another alternative country, who is better than China in the world as an investment destination? No, even including the United States, because the United States is a changing power. Every day, the power policy always changing. People feel uncertainty. That's why many Middle East countries do not like the American style anymore. They do not like the, to stay in the America because they don't know what could be happening tomorrow and after tomorrow. Not only the federal government, but also FBI can also come to your office to say hello to you. So there's no, nothing that very the stability and also trust in the world. But China is more reliable and very faithful towards. In China, many people can see that totally different philosophy, political atmosphere, economic environment, and especially the infrastructure conditions that no other country can compare with China. 
this is the advantage. So I don't think that China will lose its position to attract more global investors because actually in a short term, not too long, not longer than five or 10 years, I think within three years maximum that China will become even more attractive because we will see many now the world market is to see what could be happening for the midterm election in the United States. That could be a turning point to the global market. Mm. Elaf, very briefly, please. Uh, I think one uh, idea, this is more on a personal level, I think uh, people-to-people exchanges, I think, are very important, as uh, Professor Liu was mentioning. I think, for example, student exchanges, high school exchanges, university exchanges, tourism, you know, culture says, I think all of this is basically very helpful to not, for example, politicize or racialize uh, economic relations between countries. And I think this will be, it's a very uh, indirect way, but I think a very helpful way to make the two countries understand uh, each other uh, better. Mm. And Peter, we started with you and we end the session with you. Okay, thank you. Well, when we talk about the economic growth of China, you know, there's one perspective that's uh, for the long term and the other one are, are, are temporary uh, difficulties. The long term one is, well, you know, China is moving from a developing country to a developed country, you know, so naturally the growth will not be as large as it was before. And now, you know, China is at the level where the growth in absolute terms is, you know, uh, when we see it for last year, this is the size of the whole economy of Australia. That's massive. You know? So every year, China grows by the, the, the size of, of the Australian economy. For the short-term uh, growth difficulties, well, you know, there are three. You know, there's the remaining uh, COVID measures, and which also bring then, um, you know, the supply chain challenges. And, you know, right now the geopolitical uncertainties. But, you know, uh, these letter three, I think, they will pass, you know, and then uh, hopefully things will be smooth sailing again. Fair enough. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Peter Halis, Chief Advisor, Guangzhou Huangpu District, Dr. Ilav Ellard, Assistant Professor of Practice in Economics, New York University, Shanghai, and Liu Jixin, Senior Fellow, Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies of Renmin University of China. For your time and insightful analysis and views, please feel free to leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show. And subscribe to The Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Tuyin saying thank you for listening. Goodbye. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.